Some examples for such sudden transitions would, for example, be the origin of life, the origin of photosynthesis, the so-called Avalon explosion, which is the origin of the strange Ediacaran biota, the Cambrian explosion, where all these animal body plants originated, then the so-called Great Ordovician biodiversification event, the next would be the Devonian Necton revolution and Odontote revolution, and the Silurio-Devonian terrestrial revolution, which is the origin of land plants, the Carboniferous insect explosion, the Triassic explosions, which include origins of marine reptiles and of tetrapods like dinosaurs. Then we have the abominable mystery, as Darwin called it, the origin of flowering plants. We have the tertiary sudden origin of butterflies, we have the tertiary avian radiation, the origin of modern birds, we have the tertiary radiation of placental mammals, we have the Big Bang of the genus Homo, and last but not least we have the sudden origin of human culture in the Upper Paleolithic Human Revolution. I became fascinated by paleontology because it allows a kind of window into the deep past and gives a glimpse into long gone biota of earth history. And I loved animals and fossils since early childhood and luckily we lived in an area of Germany which is very rich in fossils. And so I could collect with my parents already fossils like uh, these Jurassic ammonites. And uh, since I always wanted to become a scientist and a naturalist in the classical sense, 19th century sense of the word naturalist, uh, I unsurprisingly later studied biology and paleontology. It is often believed that the fossil record is great support for Darwin's theory. Actually, this is not the case at all. If we look at Darwin's theory, it makes certain predictions like gradualism, that everything came into being very continuously and that there were small changes building up to big changes. But what the fossil record says is actually the contrary. What we find is not gradual developments, but saltations. We don't find stepwise building up, but sudden appearance of new forms and new body plants. And that conflicting evidence was actually already known to Charles Darwin. And this problem of conflicting evidence by the fossil record is still with us today. And that's one of the reasons why Stephen Jay Gould uh, said, said it's a kind of trade secret of paleontologists until today. The reason that many Darwinists think that the fossil record really supports uh, Darwin's theory are the following points. One is that the fossil record seems to establish deep time and change over time. The other point is that the fossil record is not chaotic, it is ordered and it is ordered taxonomically. That means if you go up the geological column from deep to upwards and from older to younger, you find overall a pattern from getting from less complex to more complex, from less similar to modern flora and fauna to more similar to modern flora and fauna. And finally, you have this kind of transitional fossils, which seem to be intermediate in anatomy. And sometimes you can even arrange them in transitional series like the horse series. But, and that is the problem, all this evidence granted as best 
establishes common ancestry. What it does not establish is any kind of unguided process by random mutation and natural selection as it was claimed by Darwin. The fossil record indeed contradicts Darwin's theory by these saltations and discontinuities. So uh, it's not at all true that the fossil record confirms Darwin's theory and Darwin's prediction of gradualism was not accidental. Actually, uh, Darwin mentioned six times in his book Origin of Species, Natura non facet saltus, nature doesn't make jumps, because he knew saltations would require some kind of miraculous interventions. And saltations are the thing that the fossil record really documents are the things that happened in the history of life. The fossil record poses several great challenges to Darwin's theory. One is that the theory predicts slow changes, but the fossil record shows rapid changes. One is that the theory predicts gradual changes with small steps, but the fossil record shows sudden changes with big steps. Then there is no evidence for gradations of one form of one species into another. Furthermore, we find that the fossils are distributed mostly on the terminal branches of the phylogenetic trees, but they lack mostly for the internal branches and for the nodes where they should be found according to the theory. And finally, there is conflicting evidence between the fossil record and between the predictions from the theory, for example, between molecular data, molecular clock datings, between the pattern of appearance that is predicted by the phylogenetic reconstruction and the pattern of appearance in the stratigraphical column. And finally, there are often fossils that are out of place, that are found at the wrong place and at the wrong time. And all these conflicting evidences require ad hoc explanations to explain away this conflicting evidence. And uh, one of these ad hoc explanations, for example, is so-called ghost lineages, totally hypothetical periods of existence of fossils where there is no record at all. Contrary to common belief, the fossil record does not at all tell a story about gradual development or about incremental changes that add up to big changes, but the fossil record tells a story about sudden abrupt changes about saltations. And this evidence, this conflicting evidence that does not support Darwin's theory can no longer be explained away as an artifact of undersampling or as caused by the incompleteness of the fossil record. It's not at all just Darwin critics like me who think that the fossil record poses a problem for Darwin's theory. I attended a conference in 2016 at the prestigious Royal Society of London, which was called New Trends in Evolutionary Biology. And there the keynote speaker was a famous Austrian evolutionary biologist called Professor Gerd Miller. And Professor Gerd Miller in his keynote talk alluded to some explanatory deficits of Darwin's theory. And among these deficits, what the theory cannot explain, he mentioned not only phenotypic novelty and phenotypic complexity, which is very important, of course, but he also mentioned the non-gradual forms of transition which we find in the fossil record. So this is important to see that this is already known in the mainstream of uh, uh, evolutionary biology. 
And so in my view, uh, I think that Darwin's theory can certainly explain phenomena that we have different species of finch on the Galapagos Island with slightly different uh, shapes of beaks of the finches, but it cannot explain how we got birds and their feathers in the first place. Charles Darwin was quite aware that his theory does not agree with the fossil record. And so he hoped that uh, this can be explained away with the incompleteness of the fossil record, with our insufficient knowledge of geology. And he hoped that over time the gaps would be filled and ultimately uh, the theory would be confirmed by the fossil record. But this didn't happen. Now we know a lot more than Darwin did and over time with growing knowledge about the fossil record the problem didn't disappear, it even became more acute. So what's the situation now 160 years after Darwin? Darwin's attempt to explain the evidence from the fossil record away as lack of knowledge about the fossil record and as incompleteness of the fossil record is no longer tenable. And here's why. Let me first give a metaphor. And this example was coined by my colleague Paul Nelson. Imagine you have a new hobby and you walk along the beach and you collect what the flood washes in. You collect starfish and shells and snails. Every day you find something new, but over time repetition sets in. And ultimately you reach a day where you only find over and over again what you already found. And then you know that you have sampled enough to know what is out there. Exactly this method is applied in paleontology to statistically test the completeness of the fossil record. And in paleontology it's called the collector's curve. In most groups of organisms we know that the fossil record is sufficiently complete to be sure that the gaps that we see and the discontinuities we see are not artifacts of undersampling or of an incomplete fossil record but are actually data to be explained. But there is another reason why this phenomenon cannot be an artifact and that is if it would be an artifact we should expect that over time the gaps get smaller and uh, the apparent non-gradual transitions become more gradual but what we actually find is that with growing knowledge of the fossil record the problems don't disappear but they get even bigger and bigger and this shows us that nature wants to tell us something. Many Darwinists will cherish every new fossil discovery that can be sold as a transitional fossil that confirms this theory. But usually if you really look at the evidence, the evidence is very thin for those cases and also there are a lot of cases where we lack those transitional fossils. So if those cases where we have transitional fossils count as evidence in support of Darwin's theory, then of course we also have to look at the other cases and have to allow for conflicting evidence where the lack of evidence doesn't confirm the theory and actually contradicts the theory. But even if we grant all the transitional fossils, as I said already, this as best establishes common ancestry, but the fossil record overall does not at all confirm the key point of Darwin's theory, which is not necessarily common ancestry, but this unguided mechanism of random mutation and natural selection. And this mechanism is definitely not confirmed but contradicted by the fossil record.
The phenomenon of sudden appearances in the fossil record is not just an exceptional case, say as in the Cambrian explosion, but actually is a pattern that is found everywhere. It is beginning with the very origin of life. It goes up to the origin of human culture. It is found in all periods of Earth history. It is found in all geographical regions and it's found over all taxonomical categories from plants and protists to invertebrate and vertebrate animals. So it's a clear pattern that cries out for an explanation. I could give you dozens of examples of such sudden appearances and in every group you look into you will find more examples. Some examples for such sudden transitions would for example be the origin of life, the origin of photosynthesis, the so-called Avalon explosion which is the origin of the strange Ediacaran biota, the Cambrian explosion where all these animal body plants originated, then the so-called Great Ordovician biodiversification event, the next would be the Devonian Necton revolution and Odontote revolution, and the Silurio-Devonian terrestrial revolution which is the origin of land plants, the Carboniferous insect explosion, the Triassic explosions which include origins of marine reptiles and of tetrapods like dinosaurs. Then we have the abominable mystery as Darwin called it, the origin of flowering plants. We have the tertiary sudden origin of butterflies, we have the tertiary avian radiation, the origin of modern birds, we have the tertiary radiation of placental mammals, we have the Big Bang of the genus Homo and last but not least we have the sudden origin of human culture in the Upper Paleolithic Human Revolution. In the middle of the Carboniferous period we find the first flying insects and they are already differentiated into very different groups of modern flying insects. And it's not only groups that are considered by Darwinists as primitive like mayflies and dragonflies. Actually they are only primitive in the sense that they occupy branches and the reconstructed phylogenetic trees that are considered to be very early. But their anatomy is very complex and they had complex eyes with a wonderful vision system and very complex flight apparatus. They could fly like a helicopter. So they were complex but they are considered to be very early in evolution. But on the other hand at the same time we already find very advanced groups of insects like the first beetles and the first wasps and they had this miracle-like kind of development where the lava di dissolves in the pupal stage into a kind of soup and the whole anatomy is rearranged into this very different adult body plan. And the striking thing is there are no fossil precursors for that. There are no credible transitions. Just presto this fully articulated marvels. In the early Triassic period we find the first representatives of different modern subgroups of tetrapod vertebrates such as the first crocodiles, the first turtles, the first dinosaurs, the first lizards. Right after the end Cretaceous mass extinction event we find within a few million years many different groups of modern birds 
and they appear suddenly on the scene without any fossil precursors. And this has been called by mainstream evolutionists and mainstream ornithologists the avian explosion or the explosive origin of modern birds or even the big bang of tertiary birds or the big bang of bird evolution. Contrary to Darwinian expectations and especially contrary to molecular clock predictions, in the early tertiary we find many different orders of placental mammals fully differentiated. This includes groups like the first fossil insectivores, the first rodents, the first carnivores, the first even-toed and odd-toed ungulates, the first primates and even the first bats. And for none of these groups we find the expected Cretaceous fossils that would document their differentiation from an assumed common mammal stock. Even though there are some transitional fossils, what we lack is this plethora of transitional fossils that would be predicted by the theory where you would have thousands of small steps that show the transition from one form to another form. And also we lack transitional fossils for many of the major transitions in the history of life. For example, there are no transitional fossils that show how the Ediacaran biota came into being. We have no transitional fossils for all the animal body plants in the Cambrian explosion. We have no or nearly no transitional fossils for the origin of the different insect orders, for the different mammal orders. And this, for example, includes bats. And imagine that the oldest fossil bats that we know are already totally modern, hardly distinguishable from a modern bat with completely developed wings already with evidence in the ears for echolocation. They are just there and there's no fossil record showing the many steps that were necessary to build up these body plants by incremental changes. Charles Darwin himself said that the fossil record is one of the most obvious and gravest objections that could be raised against his theory because he knew that the evidence conflicted with his theory. And that is also the reason why many contemporaneous paleontologists of Darwin's time rejected his theory because they were quite aware that the evidence doesn't fit. But even today there are a lot of paleontologists and a lot of biologists who work with fossils who are aware of the problems and who admitted them. Among them, for example, is George Gaylord Simpson, who is maybe the most influential paleontologist of the 20th century, or Ernst Meyer, who's the co-founder of the modern evolutionary synthesis. They both admitted explicitly that the fossil record is discontinuous and that it doesn't fit with the gradual prediction of Darwinism. Then we have people like Colin Patterson, uh, who was a curator of uh, paleontology at the British Museum and one of the co-founders of pattern cladistics. He said that there is a lack of transitional fossils. Then there is David Raup, who was a curator at the Field Museum and a co-discoverer of these famous five big mass extinction events. He said that Darwin was very much puzzled by the fossil record and that the situation doesn't ch didn't change since Darwin's time in favor of his theory. There are, for example, Gareth Nelson, a curator at the American Museum of Natural History for fossil fish, or Henry G, who is the editor for biology at the most prestigious scientific journal in the world, Nature, and both of them said that 
all these cases where fossils have been aligned in series of alleged ancestor descendant relationships that they are not scientific but rather pernicious illusions as Gareth Nelson's put it or even more akin to bedtime stories as Henry G put it. There are people for example like Douglas Irvin who is one of the world foremost specialists on the Cambrian explosion and Douglas Irvin said that it looks like the great taxonomic categories, the classes came first and that the lower taxonomic categories came later and that it doesn't look like that the large differences were built up by the smaller differences. And it's not for nothing that it was paleontologists like Niels Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould uh, who came up with this theory of punctuated equilibria to accommodate the conflicting evidence of the fossil record and reconcile it with an evolutionary worldview. And Stephen Jay Gould really said that he was very much troubled by the fact that the fossil record doesn't really show this directional arrow, this kind of trajectory of change that would be expected by the theory. And last but not least, famous Richard Dawkins, when he spoke about the Cambrian fossils, he said, it is, it looks like as if they were planted there without any evolutionary history. Maybe, just maybe, scientists should listen a little bit more to what nature wants to tell them. A common attempt to explain away the conflicting evidence from the fossil record is simply denial. So people either deny that the abrupt transitions happened at all, they say well they were much longer than people claim, or they say well these abrupt transitions are an artifact of an incomplete fossil record or of incomplete sampling of the fossil record. But most of biologists today if they knew the evidence, they, they know that they have to come up with an explanation. One attempt is to explain it with so-called intrinsic factors. That would be basically genetics. They will say maybe there were faster mutation rates or maybe we didn't need new proteins and new genes after all, but just some rewiring of the toolkits of the gene regulatory networks. But recent studies have shown that this is not true. Every major transition in the history of life required new genes and new proteins. So there's another thing and that is extrinsic factors, outside factors. And there are two types. One is other living beings, so-called biotic factors. And that would be, for example, competition, increased competition or increased predation. There is a catchword for this that is the Red Queen hypothesis, named after a character from one of Lewis Carroll's novels, Into the Looking Glass, where the Red Queen had to run faster to stay where it was. The other type of extrinsic factors is abiotic factors and that is all those hypotheses that appeal to increased or lower oxygen content, different climate, there were global glaciations, there was a meteorite impact or large volcanism and boom this explains why we have this sudden appearance of dinosaurs or something. The problem with all these kinds of so-called explanations is that none of these explanations really can explain where the new information came from. They are maybe some of the conditions that were necessary for a change or that accompanied change, but they are certainly not sufficient conditions for a change. So we all know a meteorite impact does not a new gene make.
A really fatal problem for Darwin's theory, in my view, is the so-called waiting times problem. And the waiting times problem arises from a combination of two disciplines that are usually considered to be good support for Darwinism. One is the fossil record that apparently establishes deep time and transitional forms, so establishes macroevolution. And on the other hand, population genetics, which establishes microevolution. Think of evolution of drug resistance in the petri dish in germs. So people think if we combine these two things, then long periods of times of microevolution will explain macroevolution. But actually, if we combine these two disciplines and the evidence from these two disciplines, what we find is a major problem because if you use the mathematical apparatus of population genetics, you find that the geologically established windows of time that are available for different transitions in the history of life are orders of magnitude too short to allow for the necessary genetic changes to arise and to spread in an ancestral population. And this basically shows that Darwin's theory, the neo-Darwinian mechanism, is not mathematically feasible. If we look at human origins, then there is a very surprising finding by modern science. The mainstream evolutionists, Durrett and Schmidt, they made a calculation. How long does it take for a single coordinated mutation to originate in an ancestral human population? And they found it would take 250 million years. But the fossil record shows that for the time necessary between the separation of the human lineage from the lineage of chimps and large apes was only 6 million years. So 6 million years is available and 250 million years would have been necessary. The numbers simply don't add up. And it's not that a single coordinated mutation would have been sufficient. Even if there's only a difference in the genome between chimps and humans of 5%, these 5% would translate to millions of differences in base pairs of the DNA. So the time is simply not sufficient to accommodate all these genetic changes in the human lineage that is available by the fossil record. If this is a problem for human origins, then the problem for the origin of animal body plants is even much bigger. Think of the Cambrian explosion. A recent study of mainstream evolutionary biologists has shown that the transition from, let's say, jellyfish-like assumed ancestors to fully developed trilobites took only 30 million years. And imagine how many coordinated mutations were necessary to get this kind of re-engineering where you have the building up of compound eyes, of exoskeleton, of articulated legs, of a nervous system, of a gut system, and only 30 million years available. You may think 30 million years is a lot of time, but actually it's only the lifespan of one or two successive marine invertebrate species, according to textbook wisdom. Two other formidable examples for the waiting time problems are, for example, the origin of ichthyosaurs and the origin of bird feathers. For the transition of ichthyosaurs, there's only the lifespan of a single larger vertebrate species available for a transition between an assumed monitor lizard-like terrestrial ancestor and a completely fish-like ichthyosaur. Impossible. And 
If you look at birds, they have the most complex integumental structure, skin structure that are known in the animal kingdom. These feathers with their branches and interbranches and subbranches and interlocking devices. Many mutations would be necessary to achieve this. And there are only a few million years available to make a transition from these filamentous dinofuss structures that we find in some dinosaurs and fully pinaceous bird feathers that we find in later uh, fossil birds. I personally currently work on a study on the transition between terrestrial and marine whales. And there is also a very big waiting time problem. What we found is that to make the transition between the so-called protocetes, which were still quadrupedal swimming animals which were propelling in the water with their hind legs, to make this transition to fully marine fish-like whales which swim uh, with reduced legs and driven by the uh, tail fluke. For this transition, there's only one and a half million years of time available. That is, according to mainstream evolutionist knowledge, just a third of the lifespan of a single vertebrate species to make this re-engineering from a land animal to a fish-like whale. That's unbelievable and shows that there is a major theoretical problem for the unguided process postulated by Darwin. The problem for the Darwinian mechanism that is posed by the fact that for many transitions we only have time available that equals the lifespan of just one or two species that come successive after each other is the following. To make a major re-engineering you usually think you would require many successive species which are slightly different from each other and then ultimately after a long time and many different species you get a major new body plan or a new organ. But here you see that you would have to make a jump either with one or two species or even within a species to a totally new reconstruction. And so even if common ancestry should be correct, this shows that this cannot be explained with an unguided process. There you need some kind of intelligence be infused from outside the system to make such a big jump within a single species. The interesting thing with the waiting time problem is that we can do the math. We can do computer calculations, we can do simulations, and we come up with very precise results that show the neo-Darwinian mechanism is not feasible. It specifically shows that the re-engineerings that are required cannot be achieved by a mechanism which uh, relies on small incremental changes over long periods of time because the time is not available. So that is one of the reasons why mainstream evolutionary biologists and theoretic biologists have secretly abandoned neo-Darwinisms and are now uh, gone scrambling in search for new evolutionary mechanisms. Many of the new approaches that have been suggested have been formulated in a new movement that has been called the extended synthesis or the third way of evolution. 
And third way is kind of interesting because it alludes to two other ways. One is neo-Darwinism that is considered by those scientists as refuted. The other is intelligent design, which is a route they don't want to go. So they look for some naturalistic alternatives and they have formulated different hypothetical mechanisms. And those mechanisms can be captured with sexy buzzwords like evodevo, epigenetics, niche construction, phenotypic plasticity, evolvability, natural genetic engineering, hybridogenesis, symbiogenesis, you name it. The problem with all those approaches is that they either do not address the crucial problem of the origin of new information at all, or they ultimately have to fall back and rely on neo-Darwinism themselves to explain how they came about. For example, how did phenotypic plasticity arise? If neo-Darwinism is required and doesn't work because of the waiting time problem, then uh, these approaches cannot even get off the ground and are rather dead in the water. None of these different approaches that have been suggested within the extended synthesis is winning the day just because none of them is really adequate to explain how new information arises, how new biological forms could originate, how we could get new body plans. None of these approaches is really apt to explain the crucial question. They can explain some of other issues that may be interesting. For example, niche construction explains this kind of interrelationship of a beaver and the dam he builds and the dam changes the ecosystem and this feeds back again on a selection of the beaver body maybe and maybe he gets a little bit bigger or smaller but it doesn't explain how did mammal hair arise or how did we get beavers in the first place. So most of these mechanisms are totally insufficient really to solve the crucial information problem at the base of the history of life as it has been formulated, for example, by Stephen Meyer in his book, Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt. We know only of one cause that could generate so much information in such a short time. And we know only one cause that could generate novel functional form at all. And this cause doesn't work by random accidental changes. This cause envisions an end goal, brings all necessary part together, and then infuses the required information. Information means forming the matter into a pattern that fulfills this end goal. And this information has to come from somewhere and we know where it does come from. If it is architects, engineers, software programmers or artists, they all can do the creation of new complex stuff because they are intelligent minds. And intelligent minds are the only causes we know that could create this effect. In my view, the fossil evidence clearly points to its intelligent design because the observed changes happened much too quickly to be explained by an unguided naturalistic process. They have to be explained with an intelligent agent. And for me personally, really a light bulb went on when I 
discovered that this is not based on an argument from ignorance, not based on a kind of God of the gaps argument, but is just based on a rational inference to the best explanation. We know that only intelligent causes can cause this effect. We look at the evidence and we see that this evidence clearly points to this cause. So ignoring the evidence from the fossil record that points to intelligent design actually is some kind of science denial. Scientists are not supposed to critique Darwinian evolution, especially not for scientific reasons. I personally observed how scientists, mainstream scientists who criticize neo-Darwinism, even from a mainly naturalistic point of view, were attacked and their expertise was disputed only because they attacked this ruling paradigm. But how much worse would your fate be if you uh, assume intelligent design as the better explanation? Actually, this happened to me at the Natural History Museum in Stuttgart. Uh, as soon as I came out as an intelligent design proponent, uh, collaborations were stopped. I didn't get funding um, anymore. Uh, my website was deleted. I was removed as head of an exhibition that I had designed. And ultimately, uh, I was told that I was no longer welcome and uh, that I was considered to be a risk for the credibility of the institution. So. It's not a big surprise that many scientists, even if they are secretly doubting Darwinism, are not outspoken about it and stay undercover. And after my coming out as an ID proponent, I was contacted by two famous colleagues who are famous scientists and world-renowned experts in their fields. And they told me very confidentially that they have come to doubt the neo-Darwinian process themselves. So probably there are more out there than we think.